When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Dan Feldman of NBC's Pro Basketball Talk, and we go through not only all four second-round series, though there is, of course, plenty of material to focus on with those four series, but also we recorded this on Thursday night. We talked about the negotiations that Philadelphia is going to have with James Harden, Brooklyn's with Kyrie Irving, and a few other off-season thoughts because Dan and I naturally have an inclination to go in that direction. This episode is brought to you by Bet Online. You can check out their website and use the code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus. This show runs about an hour. I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. We have four series, three of which are still going, one of which completed mere hours ago. And I will make it your choice in terms of where you want to begin. What's striking you right now? Let's talk about uh, Buck Celtics. I love this series. I think it's fantastic. Uh, if you just look at the scores, it looks kind of like a, a normal series, which really uh, disguises how amazing the defenses have been for both teams. And the fact that the scoring looks normal, it's a credit to the offenses, that they're able to score in the face of these great defenses. You know, Sometimes to tell when great defense is being played, you actually have to watch it. You can't just look at the numbers because they're not holding them down because these teams are capable offensively. But I, I love defense. And this has been an amazing defensive series. Lots of high-level talent. And I think a, a definitive part of whether it's a great defensive series is the amount of low-level defensive talent. Like, there aren't that many places to exploit, which has made those so much more noticeable. Yes. I mean, I, George Hill is not always a bad defender, but he was so dreadful in the last game. It, it was kind of jarring how much it stood out. Uh, that, that's a great point. And we've also seen Boston get more aggressive going after Grayson Allen mm-hmm. and and that has been a kind of a thread with it. And another memorable part of this series that is along the same lines because comebacks are often made on the defensive end is the huge swings in the last three games in the fourth quarter. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, the the defenses are, are rising to the occasion, but so are the offenses, especially Giannis. Um, Giannis has gotten so much better at going against a defense suited to stop him. And, you know, the Celtics defense is fantastic overall, but having Al Horford, having Grant Williams, uh, those are are, I don't want to call them Giannis stoppers, but they're two players who are uniquely suited to stopping Giannis, and he's still able to uh, go around them enough. They've, they've flustered him at times, but enough, he's, he's been able to go around him. That's really been the evolution of his game uh, to me. It, it's, you know, there's so much talk about, oh, he's got to develop a jumper, he's got to develop a three-pointer. Uh, no, what he had to do is exactly what he did, which is when, when he's attacking the rim and he can't get all the way there, he needs some more craft in his game uh, to be able to score a around players as they're walling off the rim and uh, that that's proven crucial for him in this series before that it was in the finals last year too another part with Giannis and I wholeheartedly agree with you that was more prevalent in the first round than this round partially because just the scheme that Boston has chosen to use is that another tool in Giannis's toolbox is he's gotten so much better as a distributor when teams shift extra bodies to him and that is a a natural counter to you know forming a wall or any of the other ways that you want to describe it is that when you have extra extra head turns, extra eyeballs on you, that's leaving an opening for someone else and finding those passes and whether those lead to open three-pointers, like we saw some of those for Pat Connaughton and a few others. But in this series, it has to be, at times, more of Giannis trying to beat his guy one-on-one because the Celtics aren't helping as aggressively as many other teams have because they don't have to. 
Yeah, I, I think we should give Jason Kidd a little bit of credit. Easier to do now. He's looking like a good coach with, with the Mavericks, uh, but for kind of making Giannis a point guard for a time. Um, and there were some ups and downs with that, but I think that was really good for Giannis's development. I don't know. I might be the only one. Uh, you are definitely, I think, in the majority of giving Giannis credit for becoming so much of a better passer. Uh, I think he's improved somewhat on that uh, in that area. Um but I don't know. I, I thought he was already a pretty good passer and, and don't see it as quite the breakthrough that others do. I don't know if he, I'm if so I was overrating him before or underrating him now. I think back to the 2020 series against the Heat. He had a lot of tunnel vision. He, his handles also gotten a little bit tighter. And in that series, he was worse than he usually is. And so that's one, though, that really sticks with me, especially because that series so thoroughly defied my expectations like that. Those always you know, those sorts of things always linger in my mind. And, and you honest the way i like to think about it is that he he had kind of those nascent distributor tools but it's different when you're doing it as a star and you're you're kind of you're not necessarily running the offense though he does a fair amount of that it's more just those marginal decisions of should i try to attack here or do i make the pass what is the timing of the pass what is the angle and the speed and he has gotten better i agree with you that the tools were there but i do think that his judgment and his execution has improved yeah um I, I do think that's the area where it has come through the most is you're not predetermining. Is this a passing play? Is this a play where I'm going to attack where he, he can do it on the fly? Right. And, 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 and incidentally, considering who they're playing, that's something that Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are still working on. And they're significantly younger than Giannis and they haven't reached the same heights that he has. But I, I want to see where that goes with for them, too. So that's one where I have seen the real growth from Tatum. Uh, Brown, I agree with you. Tatum, I, I think, of course, he has room to get better in this. But I think from the beginning, of this season to right now ha- has made that leap uh, of becoming that next level as a passer. Um, this is not the best time to make the argument because this is why I say there's more room for growth and it hasn't been on the the best display in this series and the Bucks have, have as I've said already a great defense. Um, that That's a factor in it. So he could be better, but I, I do think I would describe him as good at that now. Good is is apt. I think that's a fair, a fair descriptor of it and Tatum is still in also the stages where he, you know, he's not Giannis. He's generating, he's still work getting work on generating the extra attention. And also, I think this was an important part of game four. When you have, when you have an advantage, making the most of it, whatever that is. And so getting all the way to the basket, he had, the, he had a couple, a couple of big plays. And I believe that was the third quarter of game five as well. And there are those different elements. And oftentimes the players who aren't LeBron James or some of these like just innate creators, you kind of need to go through the cadence of generating the extra attention and then figuring out what to do with it because you don't get that many reps early in your career unless you're on a really bad team which Jason Tatum thankfully for him has not been yeah what's weird is he seemed to get more of those reps uh, was it his second year the year that uh you know all the the vets were Kyrie was hurt uh Gordon Hayward was hurt I believe that was his second year and and they you know he kind of led them to the Eastern Conference Finals and he seemed so far ahead on all of these things and uh uh, then regressed a little bit and is coming, you know, back to it. I, you know, I think he's well beyond where he was as a rookie, but it, it almost seemed a little easy for him. Uh, I, I don't think the passing or anything was there, but uh, just handling having that pressure on him. Um, I'm sorry, that might have been his rookie year. Was that his rookie year? Which is even more impressive. I think it was the second, but I'm not 100% on that. And another part it of it was his rookie year. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, yes, that's right. It was his rookie year. I mean, that's, that's, oh, it's his rookie year and maybe Jalen's second year? Yeah, that would, uh, okay. That, that makes some sense. But another wrinkle to me in this series, especially, you know, in, in game four, but throughout is Al Horford stepping into a larger role. He's been, I mean, he's been really good the whole series, but that off the offensive performance performance that he had just seemingly making every single shot and Boston they're a little bit light in terms of play initiators and play finishers and that's a part of why their defense has been so great is that they've made a couple of choices that are defense over offense and when you have the best defense or close to it in the league that looks a lot better and that means that on night to night situations you're going to need somebody to do to do well Horford's been that guy a couple times I still think that there will be Derek White nights there haven't been that many in these playoffs and, you know, Marcus Markin hit him in, open, in, in days. And then, I mean, there will be times Jalen Brown had it for one quarter of game five where some one of their stars can take him home. 
Yeah, I, I think Jalen Brown needs to be more aggressive. A lot, of, a lot of good things happened for the Celtics when he was aggressive. A lot of good things happened for the Celtics when he was less aggressive in the first half of the last game, and I couldn't understand why he wasn't attacking more. He did it in the third quarter, and then uh, it went away a little bit later. I, I, it's, it, I still think uh, he and Tatum are, are still trying to figure out the right balance of you know who's going to be the guy when and why, um, and that's that's tough. Uh, you know, I, I'd still want to be building around those two, but in this series and this matchup uh i don't think i necessarily want to take touches away from tatum uh or Al Horford, but I, I would like to see a little bit more Jalen Brown. We've also a uh, game five, maybe the best encapsulation of why it is so hard to put Drew Holiday in context, where <laughs> he's a distinctly more limited generator of offense for himself and others than a lot of the other high level guards in the NBA. But he's also the best defensive guard in the league to me. So yep. do you, the the Bucks, even without Chris Middleton, have done a good enough job generating good looks even with Drew, you know, having some trouble shooting and everything else. But those last two plays, I mean, what what else, what can, what else can you what else can you ask for from him? Oh, I mean, just, just incredible defense. It, it, the moment on the first one where, where it looked like Connaughton got beat uh, for Drew to recover there and to have the balance and the wherewithal to throw the ball off smart, uh, just awesome. I, I don't uh, know if you read Eric Nem's piece on this. but No, I have not read it yet. I have it saved. The Drew Holiday working on his one-footed balance to, and doing a lot of stuff barefoot. Like You saw a lot of that on on the block and, and hold. And I mean, his momentum was carrying him completely out. But Holiday being able to gather himself and throw that ball made a world of difference because if they didn't have con- if they didn't have control of that then boston would have gotten another credible chance to win it in regulation what really struck me was that he seemed to as he was blocking it already be going to get the ball and throw it off smart like he knew exactly where the ball was gonna go and what he was gonna do with it which is especially incredible because he really had to cover a lot of ground to make that block like making the block alone would have been impressive enough even if he were completely out of control to do it that would have been a, an awesome play but to, to have the control to be setting up the next move like he's playing pool just incredible i feel like i could talk about this series for another week it'll be it'll be over by then but it's been i mean there is a distinct chance to me we'll see plenty of plenty of fun stuff moving forward that this this will be the series that sticks with me the most of the 2022 playoffs um it might i mean it's one i've enjoyed the most um nets celtics and 76ers heat have their own um, ramifications just in terms of how we're going to see the teams that lost those series. Uh, uh, I, I think you've already set the table, so let's go to Sixers Heat. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to do with James Harden. Uh, he was not a max player in these playoffs. He definitely wasn't a max player in this last game. Um, but you can't lose him. You, you know, where, where they are in team you can't lose him. And, and so, yeah, the 76ers are, are in a difficult spot. This came up in the live show that Nate and I did on, you know, just mere hours ago. Um, And, you know, you and I have both focused on the CBA and everything else. And I mean, wrote a piece for The Athletic. In normal circumstances, I would trust Daryl Morey a lot to handle a complex negotiation with a player who is aging out of his best years and is a nebulous part of where the team is going, especially with Harden about to turn 33 during this offseason. But Daryl Morey has an unusual and a very intertwined relationships with James Harden. So uh, what I find most fascinating about this situation, and I hadn't really fully articulated this actually until until earlier today, is that my inclination is that Harden has extremely little external leverage. There are teams that would be happy to to have him on their squad and, and he could elevate an offense. And there will inevitably, just like at times there have been with Ben Simmons, a conflation of he had a really bad playoffs with he is a bad player all the time, which is not fair. And I mean, Harden was even with the kind of the weirdness of this year, like all, all you not that EPM is gospel, but let's just just for the sake of it, Harden was still I think like number 15 in offensive EPM this year. And that was the worst he's been in any time recently. And so like, there's still a useful player in there. Is it a max player? My instinct is no. But in a normal circumstance, I, I would trust Del Mori to navigate that situation. But the lack of external level to me is the big story is that can he meaning James Harden generate enough internal leverage should he care about maximizing this to get an extremely lucrative long-term contract one thing I wonder is how much he even 
needs to. Um, I, I think about college football coaching, where a lot of times, uh, because of who's paying the money and who's deciding to pay the money, where there's a difference there, uh, sometimes it feels like the way it works in determining a coach's salary is you got a coach, he might not be the best coach, but you give him the best salary and say, well, yeah, he's the best coach. Look how much we're paying him. <laughs> And I feel like there might be some of that dynamic at play with James Harden. Um, I do believe Daryl Morey cares about you know, managing the payroll, managing the cap. He's very good at his job. But also, in the end, it's not his money. It's the owner's money. And it's easier to spend somebody else's money. And, you know, I, I don't know. This is the totally speculative. I have no idea how long Daryl Morey is planning to do this job, uh, whether or not he cares that, that it becomes a harder job down the road if Harden is on a huge contract. I also think Harden... Harden will age okay on this contract. I don't think it's like Russell Westbrook or John Wall because Harden could shoot. And shooting is the skill that really swings more than anything else how you age. The idea this is going to be the worst contract in NBA history. I'm nowhere near there. But Harden, if he's declining from where he is now, it's not a high enough peak. That's the problem. Um, it's, I think a, it's, a hu- it's a huge problem. And the other piece of context that I know you're attuned to as well is that the Sixers books actually aren't that bad. Tobias Harris, two more years making way too much money. And Joel Embiid is now on this long-term extension. You got, you know, got the Supermax already lined up. But other than that, they don't have a lot, li- they don't have a lot already on the books. It's still, it's not until 2024 that Tyrese Maxey is going to be on a new contract. So Maxey's next deal will kick in after Tobias Harris comes off the books. So another part of this, which might just be Maury justifying it to himself, is the opportunity cost of paying, you know, like fighting over $5 million or $10 million a year with James Harden is actually relatively small for the Sixers, assuming they're not caring too much about maximizing Harden's trade value in 2024. Maybe they should care somewhat about that. I don't I don't think that's like an unreasonable uh, concern. I, you know, who knows what James Harden w- will want? Um, you know, one aspect of this that I find very fascinating, and I'm not sure we'll ever know, uh, but Harden said not, you know, he's got to get healthier. He, hasn't, he said he hasn't been healthy in two years. Well, what happened two years ago? He got out of shape so that he could force a trade from the Rockets. And if that's what's really holding him back and has just sidetracked his career, I don't know. There's uh, there's some irony there. I also always have concern. I agree with you that shooting will help Harden's game age better than some of his brethren. But there's always this idea that players who rely on athleticism less, it matters less if they lose a step or a half step. And <laughs> I think to an extent that can be true. Westbrook is a great example of that, that those times that he's flying by guys and getting a finish that though he's not flying by them or the, you know, he doesn't quite have the ability to the coordination or everything to make as many of those finishes as he used to. But when you're already limited as an like kind of as an athlete and Harden, it's, it's a different kind of craft with him. Then what that does is it means that you're not creating as much separation. You're not you, you're not getting the advantages to the same degree as you were before. And like I, I think about late career Paul Pierce as an example of this, and there are numerous others. And you know Paul Pierce aged better than a lot of oh again a lot of his brethren. But if and this gets into the idea of is Harden worth a max? What level of player is he? Is how much of a stomach do you have for a, for a player who is simultaneously a valuable regular season guy, but a an awkward fit with your superstar, mm. and also especially on the defensive end, like mm. just just we've, we've seen how that how that can play and Harden's energy level and everything else, but also somebody who even if the passage of time is more kind to them than it could be, is, as you said, is fading down from a less high peak unless you believe that all of this is hamstring. I don't see the Harden and Bede fit as that awkward. Is it perfect? Far from it. Um, it's it's not an ideal fit. Uh, but maybe I'm jaded. But I say, well, you know what's a terrible fit? Uh, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. <laughs> But sure, by comparison, sure. This, he, this he, amazing. He, he leaps over that bar. And, and so, yeah, I, I mean, you can't just wait around for the perfectly fitting star. If you can get a star, you got to get him. The question is, is Harden still a star? That's less certain. Uh, but to me, if he's a star, if he can get back to being uh, the player we'd expect him to be at this age, which probably isn't you know the, the best he was. It wasn't. We're probably past peak Harden and yeah. should have always expected he's gonna, that. He's going to be 33 next playoffs. Like, that's... Yeah. So if he can get to the player we would have expected at this age. 
I think you'd do that absolutely with a beat. I don't. I wouldn't have any hesitation. I wouldn't have any consideration for. Well, we got to wait for a star who's better fitting. You can get that Harden. I'll take him in a heartbeat. Maury also dealt with the practical problem that Simmons was, and I mean that was before we even knew about all his backs, like the full full nature of his current back stuff. That what else were they really expected to do? And Philly gave up a fair amount in terms of Seth Curry and some draft picks in in the overall deal. And you can't, you know, you, it, it's hard to find those points. A a lot of the best players and a lot of the best fits with Joel Embiid were never available and probably were not going to be available. And that's one of the challenges that Danny Ainge had to navigate with the Celtics is you're aiming high, but aiming high is more many times of a supply business than anything else. And there are they interested in sticking around? Are they like, what, is, what if they're available, what is the reason they're available? And, you know, with Harden, that was a complicated relationship. And I think that connects with another free agency negotiation negotiation that is probably more interesting for us right now than it will actually be in reality and that's Kyrie Irving yep well I don't know listening to Sean Marks it might be pretty interesting (laughs) in reality today is the first time like with Marks being able to say that's like saying that stuff publicly that I've actually been more intrigued by it because we haven't heard very much of that from the Nets end and I would be stunned if Marks said something like that and Kevin Durant was blindsided by it. And so maybe there is a little more to it, but like James Harden, how much external leverage can Kyrie Irving wield in this circumstance? He doesn't necessarily have the same unavailability problems moving forward. We'll have to see where the world is, but I I think that's a reasonable interpretation. But there are very few teams with cap space. There are even fewer that are really competitive. And I, whatever reason, I don't think the Memphis Grizzlies would be super duper interested. But I don't know that, again, like with Harden, I don't know that that lack of external leverage matters at all. Yeah, I'm not sure it matters. Um, let me ask you this. You're not gonna, you can't pick a third choice. You can't pick a sign and trade. And this is going to be my quick plug on this. I just did a podcast with Jared Weiss. Uh, it's up on NBC Sports, and I asked him the same question. You can have Kyrie Irving at the max, fully guaranteed for five years if you're the Nets, or you cannot have him at all. What are you picking? Kyrie. Yeah, me too. I, I, would, <laughs> I, feel badly, I would feel badly about it, but that is the choice. Yep. Um, yeah, you just got to hope for the best. And it's probably a similar question with James Harden and the 76ers. You have to get that top-end talent to have a chance, and then you have to hope for the best. You have to hope they develop and come together uh, and are available in all the right ways, and sometimes you just don't know. Um, there, There is another element of this equation, which I think is extremely important, and it involves another player we've discussed on this podcast, and that's Russell Westbrook, which is high-level players hold their value better than you'd think because there are often teams that will believe in them, and it only takes one or two general managers to still feel that way for it to matter. And Tommy Shepard overpaid for Russell Westbrook when they got him. That season was a mixed bag, though fortunately for Shepard, it ended better than it started. And so that's what lingered. And then he got out of it perfectly. They, The Washington Wizards walked out of the... T- pair of Russell Westbrook transactions in a better place than they started, even if you didn't consider the John Wall health element of it. Yeah, I don't think the Wizards overpaid to get Westbrook. He was good for them in in the end. In the Um, second half of the season, yes. Okay, and and into the, you know, getting them into the playoffs. Um, sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, think, I think you could say career. that season went reasonably well for them. I, that's yeah. fair. Um, but they did give up. The, I mean, they gave up. A, it was a was it one first or two firsts? I want to say it was one first. I think it was one. Um, yeah, I don't think that one has conveyed yet. Um, so we'll it, see where it has it, not. Um, and I think it's lottery protected, right? If I'm, it is. It is top fourteen protect. It, it has descending protection moving forward at dropping. But I mean, it's God. It's encumbering them until at the latest twenty twenty six. Well, you say encumbering. I might say preventing them from making a, a foolish move to trade another first round pick. Fair. Um, Some encumbrances yeah. are not bad, <laughs> right? And, and so yeah, you 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 get this player, and to your point, he retains his value because he has the the reputation and was still a good enough player for part of the season in Washington and you can get value back in the trade it was a good rental and the Wizards were were better off before really I I had for my executive of the year I I had Tommy Shepard I am somewhere in the top three it might have been number two and it's not like the Wizards are in great shape but it, it was based on the idea that they would have been in even worse shape if he didn't do such a good job um and so there, there was that risk there with Westbrook that maybe you're the one stuck with him when the music stops but nope, they weren't it's always Rob Palenka <laughs> 
Plenty more to come with Dan Feldman, but first, a message from BetOnline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports information. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's basketball playoffs, Major League Baseball scores, fights, and even next season's NFL futures. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering needs, including live betting and, of course, your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It is really easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to sign up today and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's CLNS50. You can remember the 50 because it's a 50% welcome bonus. So check it out at Bet Online, where the game starts. Going back to Philly, their offseason is different than a lot of other ones because and and this is something Nate and I have talked about a little bit about and it's an element that's different in the 22 offseason than a lot of ones we've seen was that because of the flurry of activity at the very end of the deadline and you had these high profile moves and like there were even reporting that Brooklyn was trying to do other stuff and it fell through for whatever reason like there was potentially a Nick Claxton deal everything else we have a series of situations Brooklyn being one Philly being another there are a couple others you could probably think of them around the league where the general manager ended the season with a framework that they weren't able to develop around. Like the the Sixers are probably the single best example of this, where they got James Harden, but they went through their entire 21 offseason not knowing that they were going to have James Harden, not knowing what was going on with Ben Simmons and everything else. And so now Maury gets an opportunity to, beyond the Harden negotiations, focus on that lens of what do we want around Joel Embiid, first and foremost, but Joel Embiid and James Harden. Do you see anybody on the roster who just does does not work with them? To me, the nice thing about Embiid and Harden is the type of players you'd want around them are generally the type of players you'd want around any stars. They're they're not, you know, the, the Embiid-Simmons pairing was so challenging. I think that was one of the big problems of the 76ers plan all along was the years they spent insisting we need to build around Embiid and Simmons. And we're not even open to breaking that up uh, because you churn through so many assets trying to find the right fits around those two. And the problem was those two didn't fit together. So you waste a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of assets on that. Uh, I think the Embiid Harden fit is simpler. Um, and so you're going to want the the type of wing shooters that you always want to put around stars, to put around those two. That is a very reasonable point. And hopefully the Danny Green injury is not significant enough that it affects next mm-hmm. year. I'm concerned that it is. I'm deeply, deeply concerned that it is. I think that your point is fair. However, acquiring those sorts of players is extremely difficult because they're, yeah. they're, in, they're in short supply. And because Philadelphia doesn't have a ton in the way of resources. Maybe they could get somebody for the taxpayer mid-level exception. I think it's very difficult to make a Tobias Harris trade that nets one of those guys back. And also, Philadelphia out their 2025, and then there's some protection off that, and then the first allowable draft, first-round pick, and then they they owe their 22, they owe their 22 that's already going to be... Oh, yeah, and there's a deferral right on that, which is also really interesting. And, and so, by the way, if I were Brooklyn, I would, I would use that deferral right, even though there's a distinct chance that next year the Sixers are meaningfully better than they are, but the it, it is an unprotected deferral, right? Oh yeah, I'm using that so for sure. There is there are so many ways that a season could go wrong, and the marginal difference between the 23rd pick not even accounting for the difference in draft quality between the 23rd pick and the 29th pick is not that great. So you take the snowball's chance or the low chance that it's a lottery pick and then it could even be just a better first round pick or something else like that. And you work with that. The Sixers were pretty healthy overall this year other than their number two player not being on the floor for most of the season. So it's going to be hard for Maury to do it. Uh, Wait, Tyrese Maxey played a lot of the season. (laughs) That's true. I you could definitely especially with the growth that he had, you could make an argument that Maxi was Maxi was better for the Sixers than what Ben Simmons would have been. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go that. I'm a bigger believer in uh a healthy Ben Simmons uh than you are, I know. 
Um, I don't, I'm not counting on ever seeing that player again. Maybe we'll hopefully we will, but I'm not counting on it. Maury, I'd be interested. The, one of the things that I've liked a lot about his tenure, particularly with the Rockets, like with, with the Rockets during those lean years with Tillman Fertitta as the owner is that he did a nice job maximizing kind of the end of the roster, trying things out. And, and, you know, there were decisions that didn't work, you know, Michael Carter Williams and Mello that one year, but being able to work through it and find different things. And he will will presumably have fewer spending constraints with the Sixers. I'm hopeful. So he could be a little bit more aggressive in some of those circumstances, but they don't have a ton of roster spots to work with, but I think they have enough and maybe they can, you know, do something with a few of those if they really, really need to. But we've also spent, we spent a lot of this time talking about the Sixers. The Miami Heat are advancing in the playoffs. I was impressed that they were able to weather the storm of Kyle Lowry, not only being absent for a majority of the series, but also playing poorly when he was available due to the hamstring issue. But I, so, so I, I want to give Miami respect for what they pulled off in the series and they throttled the Atlanta Hawks in the first round. So they have done nothing wrong, but I, but. Also, I also am seeing what happened in this series and the juxtaposition with the other Eastern Conference semifinal. Mm-hmm. And while I am impressed with Miami did, knowing what we know right now, I'm not expecting them to win the what Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, no, I I, I I agree. I would also favor the winner of the other series. Um, first of all, I don't think we need to apologize uh, for being more interested in the 76ers. They are a more interesting loser than the Heat are a winner. Sometimes it just goes that way. Um, it, it, it does. And also, we're going to learn a lot more about the Heat. They're going to face a yeah. more cogent test of what they do well in the next round, whichever team it is. And there have been Jimmy Butler has been phenomenal in these playoffs, mm-hmm. and he is going to face a tougher matchup. And the last time Jimmy Butler faced a playoff team that was a really challenging matchup for him, he laid an egg. The time before that, he was awesome. So oh, you have, yeah, have to yeah. have to reconcile those two things. And I'm happy waiting and seeing and acknowledging what Miami has done and it's funny that I'm thinking this because it's the team that Miami played in the first round but it's kind of like what I thought about Trey Young after last year's playoffs which is like you did a good job face in more advantageous circumstances than we expected and that's good but now we get to see it in a different thing so I think you're selling both Trey Young last year and the heat this year short a little bit um Just a little. I, I agree with you that the uh, sir. I think what you said was technically correct. I think the spirit of it w- was selling them short. Uh, you know, we could have looked back on Trey. Okay, the Knicks are one thing, uh, but why didn't the 76ers give him way more trouble? I think it was a credit to him that they didn't. Um, the Heat this year, the Hawks were a really good offensive team in the regular season. Their problems were defense. Offensively, they were awesome. They did not look awesome against the Heat. The no, Heat, they did not. Heat, the Heat's defense was so suffocating to the point where they almost made it look easy because the Hawks weren't a good team overall, right? Their their defensive problems were, were that pronounced, and they did have some flaws offensively. They, they just were not a good team, but they were they were a legitimately good offense. And, and um, Miami took Trey Young out of it almost instantly, and mm-hmm. my, they were phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, so I just want to give them sure. that credit. The, the 76ers were not that level of an offensive team. This was kind of a, a little bit more of a, a stale series. I, I really think that that's where the heat miss Kyle Lowry more is defensively um, his his toughness his physicality his intelligence um, I think there's a drop there it seems to me there should be a bigger drop offensively with without him uh, going uh, to Gabe Vincent but there just hasn't been a lot of that is Jimmy Butler stepping up like Jimmy Butler realizing yeah there's no Kyle Lowry for whatever reason the Heat are not uh, running as much offense through Bam Adebayo as I think they could as a change of pace uh, to Jimmy all Jimmy Butler all the time Tyler Hero it has not really taken off taken over um but jimmy butler is handling that and to me one of the juxtapositions that stood out tonight uh, especially was you know jimmy butler did not have the most efficient game but he knew the heat needed him to ha- have a big offensive role they needed his scoring and uh jimmy butler taking eh shots was going to be a lot better a lot of the times than than somebody else taking whatever shot they could get same was true of james harden and he took two shots in the second half and didn't score like i I don't know what's what was going on with his mental, whether it's his physical, this is some of both. Uh, some of it is definitely the Heat's defense. I want to give them credit. Uh, but again, I, I don't want to. I, I know you want to talk a little bit more about Miami, not just Philly, but man, Philly is an interesting loser. They really are. And I thought there were some great moments for Tyrese Maxey as well, and his part in what Philly.
really wants to do moving forward is a is a key. And he's had this really nice year. And there were times that the Maxi Harden pairing worked really well. And there were there you can also do that kind of split identity that when it's Maxi by himself, you can and work with some lineups and some some fits there, whether that's Maxi and Embiid or whether that's Maxi and like Paul Reed. Maybe you run some stuff that way. And there's also the element that we haven't discussed at all, which is the possibility that Philly has a new coach at some point. And that I don't I don't know. I, I don't know that there's anything else be, to, to kind of get on that now. We will maybe eventually be on that train. But the other, you and I both love team building. The other part that I want to say about this series is it's been true the entire year, but I am so impressed with how this Miami Heat organization has developed and entrusted players who either that were undrafted, who went through the Sioux Falls system, and being it, because like before the season, my big concern with Miami was that they didn't have enough depth to survive the regular season and that they were, that if they had significant <laughs> injuries, they were going to fall in the seating and everything. Completely wrong. They had yeah. plenty of injuries. They didn't stay healthy. But Struess and Gabe Vincent and Caleb, Caleb Martin. Martin. And, and they, got, they, got, they got through that. And the reason that Duncan Robinson is playing so little is primarily because Max Struess is better than he is, not because Duncan Robinson has been terrible. And I want that part of the equation to be fully respected. Yeah, it's such a devastating combo when you can attract stars and develop unheralded players, or maybe it's identify. Um, I've, I've had some arguments with people about, uh, are the Heat that good at player I think development? It's bo- I think it's both. Honestly. Yeah, I think it's both. And I'm not sure which is more. I know it needs to be both, obviously. But somebody like Struess, um, I, I guess you can determine how you want to put this. What strikes me is uh, the Heat are so good at getting players into shape. And I see Max Struess running so hard uh, around screens, competing so hard defensively. Like the amount of conditioning it takes to do that. And I just don't think any team could unlock that. So it's credit to the Heat for identifying a player who, if he got into this awesome conditioning, and I don't, honestly, I don't know. I don't know enough about Max Struess's background to know what kind of shape he was in before, but I can't imagine it was this good, um, how hard he's playing for long stretches now, like almost nobody is. But but now he, he's got this awesome conditioning and it fits, right? So you got to identify somebody who, once you get them conditioned, can do that and then get them conditioned and then put in position to thrive. However you want to split that up between identification and development, they're doing it. Also, the volume and confidence on the jump shot. And mm-hmm. that story, you could start it with Wayne Ellington. And it continues through Duncan Robinson and Hero, and now with with Max Struess. And again, you can make an argument about is that identification, is that cultivation? I think it's both. Um, and because not every player can go up to that level of volume, can do the work it takes off ball to get open as many times as they do, right? And have all that fit together. And so for Miami, keeping and it's it's not only this. And San Antonio was a fantastic example of this with a very different type of player at an earlier juncture, which is. Finding the next Jonathan Simmons instead of overpaying Jonathan Simmons. And Duncan Robinson might end up being that, but the Miami, I right now my instinct is that they're just going to move him and use that resource for something else, you know, another another type of player. And Robinson, had he's had a challenging playoff so far, but if I were another team, especially one who wasn't focused as much on the second round and beyond in the playoffs, Duncan Robinson at 17, 18 million a year, totally reasonable proposition. Yeah, and it was this... I'm trying to remember, is this contract going to go through when the new TV deal is supposed to kick in? Um, you know, because that could really make it even more tolerable. Ro- uh, Robinson, so he has a player option in 25-26. Okay. So, yeah, I, yeah, I don't think he's that toxic of a contract. Maybe uh, his trade value is even benefiting from not playing in the playoffs. He's not getting exposed defensively. It, it, you're not seeing his shortcomings. Like, we know they exist. We know that's why he's on the bench. We know that's why Struess is playing over him. But when you're not watching it unfold, uh, it's easier not to get preoccupied with it. In the Western Conference, we have a now a Game 7 after Dallas's 113-86 win, a series that has ebbed and flowed a lot basically based on which team was home at the time and I've been super impressed with Jason Kidd's coaching job overall with Dallas's defensive intensity particularly in home games and Phoenix has been below my expectations for them but to me this series has been more about Dallas being really good particularly in three of the six games rather than the Suns being bad I agree I've been very impressed with with Dallas through the playoffs uh 
uh, first round and this round. Um, the minutes where they have the most hiccups are when they're going bigger with Dwight Powell. It's worked at moments, but but as overall, uh, I haven't been too impressed there. But when they go small, it really works. This, this is an identity that works for this team. Uh, the problem is it's it's taxing to play that way. They don't have the depth to do it. And, and even, you know, it's hard to assemble enough depth to do it. You're asking smaller players to battle inside, to battle on the glass. Uh, it's exhausting. I wonder, though, if Tim Hardaway Jr. were healthy, how much better the Mavericks would look uh, to, to be able to have his 30-some minutes per game of, of playing time that you could put out there, uh, unlock more small lineups. I think he'd fit in exactly with what they're doing. Um, that in- injury, I think, is quietly impactful on on this postseason i wonder about that because they would you know if if hardaway jr doesn't get hurt are we are we saying that they still make the spencer dinwiddie trade because i don't think they do well i don't know i think that was more about porzingis than could be anything else could be and jason kidd unearthing frank nilkina who had to me has been vastly superior to Josh Green overall yeah. because yeah. he gets into the ball more defensively and offensively Nokina's time as a as a lead guard even though that ended up being not fruitful he he can make quick decisions and he I, I think that he fits in better the Suns at times have done some pretty poor threat assessment there was a play in game six where Cam Johnson sprinted out to Nokina and left the corner I think it was Bullock and no don't do that don't do that <laughs> let, let, let Frank take that shot but generally speaking he's been getting into Chris Paul and I'm sure Chris Paul has to be like, I just got off of Herb Jones, <laughs> Herb Jones and Jose Alvarado, and he got so little Devontae Graham. And now it's Bullock and Finney Smith and Frankie Smokes, and life is not fun for him. I, I think it's pronounced Alva, Al, Alva, Alva, Alvarado. The, the when, when Chris Paul at the end pretended not to know how to pronounce it after Alvarado says, well, at least Chris Paul knows, knows my name. Chris Paul uh, can be very petty. I love it. Yeah. Um, and Nilkina has the advantage of he's not out there to do anything offensively. He's not out there to play a ton of minutes. It's use all of your energy to torment Chris Paul. Chris Paul has a million other things to worry about. It's not really fair. Nokina four steals in game four. And one of the huge, or sorry, game six, one of the huge stories of this game, Dallas had only two turnovers for through three quarters. And Phoenix, and they ended up with six. Phoenix had 22 16 of which were live ball i don't expect that to fully continue but dallas has as you often see in a seven game series they have a much clearer understanding of the passes that phoenix wants to mm-hmm. make yep. and they're jumping the lanes not always for a steal but often for even more than the steals for deflections and so the passes that phoenix is trying to get to the corners and that was the other huge element of game six was that in the early going especially phoenix wasn't getting any threes yeah, it is amazing how much Dallas seems to understand the Suns' offense when it seemed like the Suns' offense was so sophisticated. Um, you know, I, I think it's a great job by Jason Kidden. Th- this is the defensive culture of the team throughout the season, uh, that they're locked in defensively. Everybody understands the game plan. It's well communicated, uh, well implemented. I-, I thought the Suns would be uh, above uh, being troubled by that. Um, and I don't know how that gets better in Game 7. If the other team really understands your offense, and knows what you're doing and can anticipate and be on top of it and has the personnel to handle it like how do you how do you get beyond that right like you're gonna try and put in a bunch of new stuff that's not gonna be necessarily great for you i don't know it's tough a through line of this postseason is there were a couple of teams that were really great on defense the second half of the year and if you want to use january 1st as the delineation line like dallas number six over that time, Boston number one by more than three points per hundred possessions. And I wondered how much of that was going to carry over. And we're seeing real tests for the Dallas Mavericks and the Boston Celtics in this round of the playoffs, both of them passing a flying color. Yeah. And the uh, Celtics uh, were excellent against the Nets. That's another one oh, where, yeah. um, you know, the, the Nets losing the first round doesn't reflect well on them, but I think different matchups and that's probably go farther. That was obviously a, a very talented team. And so I, I, I think a lot of that is just the Celtics defense uh, making the Nets look bad. Not that the Nets were bad, which is, again, like you said, a credit to the Celtics defense. I'm not going to ask you to make a prediction, but what are you what are you expecting to see in Game 7 of Mavs Suns, a series where the home team has won every single game? Uh, yeah, home teams are really good in Game 7s historically. They, uh, I th- The last time I checked, it was something like 80% of the time home teams win. It's hard for me to imagine a time where I would not predict the home team to win. 
Um, you know, it's not like we're looking at a major injury where, you know, that shifts. I don't know. Um, I, I think I would just always predict the home team. And, and you could talk with more nuance about this specific matchup and uh, why, you know, some things might tilt it toward Dallas. Some things might tilt it toward Phoenix. But an 80% baseline for the home team to win a game seven, uh, I'm just keeping it simple and going with that. It's hard because Dallas has been the superior team in three of the last four games. But some of the elements present in those three three games are not going to be present in game seven. And I so I think it's closer as I think about it, broadly speaking, I think this series is closer than the average game seven. Dallas has played really well. Their defense is tied in. And some of the gains that Phoenix made as a switching team in game five weren't nearly as effective. And Luca found some better ways to attack. They used Jalen Brunson better. And, you know, they, they were able to generate threes for some of their support players in, in, in ways that were better than in game five. So I think Dallas has a lot they have a lot there but there are still the, these advantages for for phoenix being the home team having some of their role players will probably play better so i i'm i'm hopeful that it's going to well, be a really fun one let's say that and their stars can play better uh, oh well, yes the they can yeah, yeah the, the the play better adjustment can have some significant ground to gain for the phoenix suns and the last series to discuss I brought up before the teams that have been that were the best defensively from January 1st on and Boston, Phoenix, Dallas, three of the top six. Miami was in there, of course, as well. Number three since January 1st, the Memphis Grizzlies mm. and their defense over the last couple of games. I, I thought part of game five, sorry, game four was the Warriors being bad on offense. And that was certainly a part of game game five as well. But Memphis has really good defensive talent. They are executing at a high level. They're making the Warriors work they're getting into they're getting into passing lanes they're taking some of the pet actions away even if at times they're overplaying those so for me first of all memphis absolutely has a reasonable chance to win game six to win game seven to win the series even without john Morant. i'm wondering whether the warriors go more aggressively try to shift their defensive approach they did so well at the very end of game four switching and it takes a lot out of you and important to note that unlike some of the other series like the, the past such a time here like would the Warriors go hard after that in game six they do have two days off before game seven but there's a travel day included so I think if the Warriors win game six it's going to be on the defensive end rather than on the offensive yeah, you know it's even more exhausting than switching through a game six it's playing a game six and a game seven uh and I a game the Warriors, seven on the road yeah I think the Warriors are going to go all out in game six um which obviously means a lot of Draymond Green at center playing that type of style that you're talking about the switching um doing all of those things that they don't love to do uh over the long haul but know they can do when they need to this is the time we've also seen some of these grizzlies really step up i thought jaron jackson had a really nice game five and he's become more aggressive and assertive offensively over the course of these playoffs we saw it in the first round at times when he wasn't (laughs) battling foul trouble incessantly during that minnesota series and jackson stepping into a a different a different spot and you can play with or without steven adams now that adams adams is a more viable player against the golden state warriors than he was against the minnesota Timberwolves, which is pretty incredible and taylor jenkins has Sometimes when you have fewer buttons to push, it can actually work out reasonably well because you have to kind of figure out, instead of being like, well, I can try this, it's how do I maximize what I have? And the Grizzlies were way better than the Warriors in Game 5, and I thought the Warriors mostly played badly in Game 4. They were just able to get enough to pull it out, and they were ben- they benefited from Memphis, though both teams did, missing every shot in the early part of that game. Well, early part of that game. So I, I think the Warriors are going to win this series, but I definitely feel worse about it than I did after game four and i didn't feel great about it after game four yeah i'm still favoring the warriors pretty strongly i mean i don't know how how much of game five it being that large of a route uh swing you i mean you've seen the warriors closely for a lot of years Uh, were you concerned at all coming off of that of of their I don't know if psyche is too strong, but just their approach there. Uh, I don't. I mean, they, they got throttled. I mean, that was not that was, that was an ugly, ugly game. Um, it's not a typical loss. Was it a, enough of a, a, a loss that really changed how you view things, or is this just more throughout the series the Warriors have looked flawed? More the latter. When, yeah. 
when when the wheels fall off for the Warriors, they can fall off pretty severely. That has been a story at other points in the past, and they were so sloppy in the beginning of the game. Memphis exacerbated that by playing well. And the Warriors, you know, their offensive execution was terrible for most of Game 4 as well. It's been a while since they looked really good, and they did, you know, Nate, they brought this up, that Game 3, they had the highest true shooting of a non-bubble playoff game in NBA history. So that part of it, but they still threw the ball all over the gym in that one too. And I, I think that there, so there are reasons, it's a reminder, and the loss potentially of Otto Porter, I think will really hurt them because the Warriors mm-hmm. don't actually, especially with Gary Payton out, they don't have that many players who really work in this series. And just like many of us, including myself, criticized Doc Rivers for not sufficiently cultivating, working through Paul Reed and Charles Bassey in the post in the in the regular season so that they would be confident for the postseason. I I think Steve Kerr will regret not leaning, trying Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga as much to really work through some of this stuff. So there would have been growing pains. I don't think it would have made that much of a difference, but Kaminga has been thrown into the cauldron over the last couple of games. And there have been a few times that it worked, but most of the time it's been challenging. And so the Warriors, the most, and this has been a frustration of mine. I mean, you can go through my written work over the years for this, is that they are just, and this all comes from Kerr, so reluctant to take things all the way down to basics. And you know, like have the ball in Steph Curry's hands and run high pick and roll because it's it's the system over everything. And that has been overall very successful for them. But I actually think, and if you want to use 2016 as an example here, I think it's totally reasonable that they have been too reluctant. Basically, they're like, oh, we, winning our way is, is, is the best way to win. And at times that's come at the expense of, you know, winning. Yeah, I mean, those are the types of things that I, I think you'll see more bend to in Game 6. That that if you have to uh, force-feed Curry the ball in ways that they don't like to, that they will do that in this game. That's what I'm expecting. That's why I'm confident in the Warriors. Because, I don't know, I mean, I, you make a, you have a good counter-argument with the 2016 Finals. But I do feel like there have been times when push comes to shove uh, that they're not totally wed to playing this way. The, one of their issues is push over this run, push hasn't come to shove that often. Right. Um, they, they were a dominant team and then they missed the playoffs and now this is the year where it's like oh they can't take for granted that they're going to win but they're really darn good and have a chance to win there's also the element i mean people have brought up the health benefits that the warriors had in the 2015 and this is to me is the most comparable the most comparable team to this warriors team of this run is 2015 not saying that the warriors are title favorites or anything like that or that they will actually win it but the injuries to opponents like there were a bunch of the runs where opponent point guards got hurt and everything else is a part of that story but another part was that all of those series had reasonable adjustments some offensive some defensive that they were able to come to later in the series that like unlock things so whether that's you know getting Draymond on the short roll for those four on threes against the Cavs in that finals or using Andrew Bogut as the defender on Tony Allen because Tony Allen's not going to shoot which was not the originator but maybe one of the definitive decisions in terms of oh instead of putting your worst defender on the other team's worst offensive player put your best help defender which is something Mm -hmm. that we're seeing a lot now and those tactical adjustments in various different series, those were available to them and credit to the coaching staff that in a lot of them, they got there, but also they had the talent to pull that off. And and part of why I'm not picking this Warriors team to beat the Suns, if that's what happens against the Mavericks, challenging. I I don't know which way I'd go in that. Is that, and this is my also my opposition to those who've tried to invoke the death lineup and all that type of stuff for that Warriors team, this Warriors team, before they've won anything, is the reason why why death lineup and those things were appropriate with those Warriors teams is that they were dynamic and dangerous offensively, but they also could defend at a high level. And we haven't seen this Warriors group defend a high level offense really, really well yet. And that's what makes a group special. Yeah, um, I I agree with that. Uh, I I do think though that the 2015 Warriors were much better than this year's version. Agree. Uh, okay. Okay. So oh, you're yeah. saying most similar. No, yeah. I'm just speaking. Well, because the 17, 18, 19 teams were just far more talented. Twenty. Yeah. You know. Twenty. I, I, I guess if those are the choices. Right, and then and then 16, the 16 team versus now is it's different in, in a couple of different ways. I I think that part of the reason why is because because of some of the turnover this year's team has 
a lot of guys that are kind of trying figuring out their place in this world, which mm-hmm. the 15 team had because Kerr was the new coach and they had had some personnel turnover. Whereas 16, like it was a well-oiled machine. Everybody knew what they were doing until injuries to Bogut and Iguodala and some of the other stuff. So, I mean, I guess I don't know exactly what we're counting. Last year's Warriors were definitely the most similar to this year's team. Sure. If we're counting um, them. Yeah, that's fair. But I don't know if you're counting these two as together, kind of like this iteration, because uh, last year was much more similar to this year. Um, one of the big differences uh, from the earlier in the run, Draymond Green used to be able to shoot three-pointers. He was more dynamic offensively. Um it's been rough for they, him. They lately. also they also uh, had Andre Iguodala who yes, made a well, difference. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, I just seeing Draymond Green offensively is a concern. Um, and the way Memphis defended right him in Game Five was magnificent. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, he's got to figure out where he is in in his career. If he's not going to be somebody who can you know take the shots available to him, he needs a better plan of attack for handling that. Um, you know, he, it, it, def- the defense has adjusted on him because his game has devolved. Now he needs to adjust. And he probably will. He's a super smart player, but he's got to do it. He's got to do it. And he's got to do it really quickly, not only for this series, but if the Warriors advance for the next one, because I think it will be a very similar story. You know, there have been times, uh, you know, it's not like I'm writing off his offense. It's not that, you know, he, he's not the same shooter he was. I don't think that's coming back anytime soon, maybe ever. But he, he can do more. And as t- times recently has shown that it's just right now, uh, it's it's more of the funk and. Uh, I just haven't seen this. is That's where I've seen the defense adjust and him not. Draymond also hasn't been nearly as positive as a transition offensive player. Mm-hmm. Some of that is making bad turnovers and, and everything else. But it's in the Warriors playing better in transition might give them the margin, even if their half court offense is still stuck in the mud a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which would start with playing some better defense, which is tough when uh, Jordan Poole, who I you know like a lot, is out there. Um, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that the defense isn't as sharp as the those peak warriors teams and those the death lineup it's it's different personnel it's not as good defensively and that ties in with where we started this which was quality defense is as maybe not as much but close to as much about how many below average players you have on the floor in the playoffs versus how many well above average players you have because finding mismatches hunting mismatches is something that good playoff teams do and they usually have the personnel to exploit it. yeah absolutely and it's a little bit easier now with uh, you know, I, I mean, really, you can go down the list. And it depends on the matchup, and depends on the night, and depends on uh, fatigue. Uh, Jordan Poole might be a good starting point. Uh, Steph Curry is an underrated defender. He competes, but sometimes teams can can attack him. Clay Thompson's not the same defender he was, um, especially against speedier guys. Wiggins hasn't held up as well. Draymond's the one you're not going after, but I don't know if there's there's uh, enough guys where in the right circumstances you can go after him. Exactly. Normally. I, I like to end these with what are you going to be looking for over the next couple weeks? But I think we know the answer there. What am I going to be looking for? I mean, wherever these series go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at NBC's Pro Basketball Talk. You can also listen to the PBT podcast. And as he mentioned, their most recent episode is with Jared Weiss, who has also, of course, recently been a guest recently-ish, been a guest here. And you can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Feldman NBA, D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. Love having him on, love talking with him. And I've naturally been thinking a lot about the 2022 offseason in light of Thursday's events, particularly, you know, Harden and everything else. And there's going to be a lot to chew on, even though it is not the most robust offseason in terms of free agent class. I think there are going to be some really important decisions and negotiations and what crops up. And Dan Feldman is somebody that I talked to off this podcast as well about those sorts of things. So I loved talking with him on it too. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is great for a show like Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. So if it just pops in your podcast player, it's even better. Also, spreading the word, leaving a rating and review in the podcast player if you're choosing, word of mouth, all of those things are really important. But the single best thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors for us. That is betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 code to get a 50% welcome bonus for you and to tell them that you came from us. So hopefully they see that and want to keep advertising. Really do appreciate that. You can also check out my other work. Dunked On and Dunked On Prime are still going strong. 
and they will. Nate and I are recording well over five times a week, especially right now where we're also doing free agency previews combining. We did that and we're going to get into draft work. I actually just started watching prospects about a week and a half ago, and that may turn into other projects before it turns into dunked on stuff. It just depends on when Nate starts watching. can also listen to our Spotify live shows. Those are on Tuesdays at 6 Eastern, 3 Pacific, and then it comes out a little bit later on Spotify, roughly 24 hours afterwards. And then our new thing is playback. You can, the link will be in, but it's it's through getplayback.com. And it's a really cool product. Uh, I just had my first full experience with it on yesterday because you input your cable streaming service info. And then what that allows you to do is have the closest experience to what we've loved so much about doing the League Pass show, which is that in the same screen, not a second screen, you watch the game, but you also can hear our commentary. It also has a nice discussion section. And while playback is in beta, it's 400 people in the room. So sometimes you'll need to get in early. It'll just depend on on how many people are interested in that given game. Uh, my instinct is that Nate and I will do it every, you know, every few days. And we really enjoy doing live shows. So it could be more or less frequent, just depending on how everything goes and whether the Warriors make the conference finals and or NBA finals, of course, will be pivotal as well can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I wrote a piece about James Harden's situation, and I have two others that are going through editorial right now, so that'll be moving along. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'll try to get back to you, but I'm not the greatest at that. That is not what my promise is. My promise is to read, and that's why it's input, and I really do appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.